Welcome to No Password Required, a monthly conversation that gives you an up-close and personal look at the world of cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to No Password Required, a podcast dedicated to exploring the minds and personalities that make up the field of cybersecurity. I'm your host, Ernie Ferrasso, and with me, as always, are Jack Clabby and Pablo Torres. On the podcast today, we are going to chat with Dr. Greg Hall, a research scientist at the Institute for Mach- Human Machine Cognition at and the University of West Florida. Greg's day-to-day responsibilities include research in full-spectrum cyber operations and contributing to the Florida Cyber Range, a digital platform that provides training and testing solutions for academic, government, military, and industry. Speaking of people who make major contributions, Jack, Pablo, how are you? Ernie, we're doing great. Doing great on my end, at least. Pablo, how are you? Boys, let me tell you, doing wonderful. Um, A little bit perplexed as to what's happening today. Um, I mean, we have open allegations from the Biden administration talking about China being responsible for the Microsoft breach. So that's a little jarring um, now that we're actually pointing fingers uh, to see what's going to happen next. Other than that, life is good. Well, it's funny you mentioned that. Uh, The Admiral, Admiral Mike McConnell, who's the director of uh, Cyber Florida, he sent out a link questioning whether or not we were in the wrong business because apparently uh, the federal government is now offering you up to $10 million. That's right, $10 million of them if you can uh, find some attribution to nation-state actors. So... uh, is that where, where do you think we are with that, Jack? I mean, you're you're giving me the look like, oh my goodness. Next thing you know, I'm thinking we're going to have the uh, Clint Eastwood, uh, the Spaghetti Western, the man with no name, riding around cyberspace hunting people down. You know, that's head turning money, right? That's a lot of money. So you could see a, a great '80s movie coming together here, where a couple of folks, you know, team up with a foreign government to do a little bit of hacking solely for the purpose of turning them in and then splitting the money together. I, I kind of like this idea. But I, I love incentivizing uh, Americans to do the right thing by turning in foreign actors. Like, do we need a $10 million reward to incentivize folks to turn in foreign actors? I don't know how that works, but I, I'll, we'll take it. Better to have the $10 million out there than not, for sure. Yeah, I haven't... Pablo, did you, have you done some digging into, into that? Because I'm just wondering, I mean, what, what is it that, you know, what does a concrete uh, line of evidence look like that, you know, what, what gets you that, that winning ticket as opposed to, what, do you just send him an email? Yeah, it looks like it was the Russians. And, he, and congratulations, you got to check because if that's the case, <laughs> that's the Oh, man. Um, well, I, I guess we'll see. Uh, we don't have any actual physical representation of uh, a group out there sending this sort of information and actually profiting from from the submission of data. Um, I'm, I'm kind of leaning, and I hope this isn't the case, but um, I'm kind of leaning to a situation where they're going to respond in the way that the Microsoft bug bounty program um, responded to some white hat hackers who went ahead and contributed information. And, and, and more or less, their response was, uh, thank you for the information, but you don't qualify for any award as we already knew about it. Did you actually know about it? Or are you going to just go ahead and say that you knew about this and not do the $10 million payout? Um, conversely, on the other side, I think this is a powerful use of the internet and the free market. And all we have to do now at this point is just sit back and let it go to work. Um, 
However, I do believe that with this huge headline um, across the entire country, the globe, $10 million is a lot of money. Um, they're, they're trying to find the creme de la top person capable of hiding who hasn't been found yet. And they're not even asking for the darksiders who hacked the colonial pipeline that, that lasted a month. They're, they're simply looking for someone that can hide better than the colonial pipeline hackers from, from Darkside. So if, if the U.S. can follow through with this reward promise, and I, I think they will, um, I think they're looking for someone that's going to help them catch a big fish. And it, it's going to ultimately expose that individual to a potential vulnerability, depending on how it is that they associate with the, with the interwebs and with the free world. Um, because from that point onward, you kind of just become the, the go-to guy um, or gal that, that's always going to be responsible for addressing some of our nation's critical infrastructure. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. Um, it, it's great to see that the, the, the CISA is taking action. And, and for those of you who don't know, uh, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure and Security Agency, um, wonderful organization. They're taking steps in the right direction. But um, I, I think it's not until this moment with the $10 million bounty that we're really seeing some significant um, proceedment in what cyber hacking and criminal hunting is, is going to look like for the future. Yeah, you wonder if it's like uh, turning pirates into privateers by giving them letters of mark. Yeah. I don't know if I have my history right. But, no, you know, it's funny you mentioned that, Jack. Yeah. That's, I've been doing some thinking on that because uh, – you know, now I'm going to dive into the deep world of of, uh, of international espionage. I know, espionage a, yeah, I know a guy who's uh, um, good at disguises, a guy who's very strong. Uh, you know, we're going to put the team back together. We're going to get a van. We're going to get a van, and we're going to go around the country yeah. finding the Russians. So I think we could get a pull an A team together here I, for this. I, th- I think we should. You know, I, this is this is how this all starts. Um, you know, I think we should put that out to our subscribers. Listen, if they're interested, you know, send their resumes into Rex. Uh, you know, he can uh, he he can start screening. Uh, and if any of our listeners want to donate a van, um, you know, because we are doing this kind of on the cheap, uh, it, we may we may have to use a secondhand van, which which is okay because the A team van at the time, I don't think was was new. I I think it was like a 1980 something or other variant. I wonder. Look, I wonder if you have. For something like this, if you put a $10 million bounty up, does it incentivize, you know, think about Dog the Bounty Hunter and think about the sort of bounty hunting culture. Does it incentivize, yeah. I'm not making any allegations that any of those guys break the law, but you know, we've all seen The Mandalorian. We've all seen The Mandalorian. Yeah. When you put a big enough money, big enough money That's up right. there, you know, $10 million creates an incentive to use methods that may not be methods that when you hand this over to the federal government, you necessarily want to take credit for. So I wonder if there's a little bit of a disincentive yeah. well, and then, uh, there. Yeah, and I was thinking about that too. So what is that again? What does that look like? You know, and, and then you you say you turn this stuff over, uh, and Jack, yeah. this kind of goes into the legal aspect, the chain of custody. How much of it is going to be admissible when you're when you're like, oh yeah, by the way, I yeah, uh, it's true. Uh, well, they you they know have, I, they have tips and in crime fighting hotlines uh, at the lo- at local levels for yeah. solving crimes, and it's done anonymously, and you don't have to use you know the idea is. If the tip leads to an arrest, the evidence you provide doesn't have to be used. They they take it, they go and develop, yeah. the government develops their own evidence, uh, and the anonymous tip line can be protected. So that, that's one way of doing it. And then at the federal level, there are whistleblower programs that the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission, which looks at public companies and, and um, investment advisors, they've had them in place for years. The 
uh, Department of Justice has also had them um, for certain whistleblower programs for you know public corruption, and those have paid out huge dollars. And typically, that's a percentage of the recovery, not just a cash bounty. This this almost brings mm. us back to the old days of like the Wild West, where that's right, the, dead or alive, post the number. Uh, but I. I, we got to try something, and I and I like that the government's trying something that's not criminalizing the, the the entities that are the victims of the hack, and so this is a way of yeah yeah I think that's that's great that's important you're 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 actually you're absolutely right on that aspect of it I, I think that in the past that's and that's what I think um, when we look at some of the previous data data breach incidents I think that's also what makes people reluctant to call in. You know, law enforcement to come assist them in is because they're concerned that when they, you know, when the when the, the law rides in, it's, oh hey, you know, well it turns yeah. out you weren't doing this, this, and this, and this, and so now we're going to find you. And then they talk about adding some insult to injury. I think so, and I, I'd like to see an appeal to patriotism here. I'd like to see a little bit of an appeal to the better angels, where if we believe that foreign actors are responsible for these things, it's an attack on American productivity on American jobs on American products let's on American safety and security right if we can't uh, have the rail lines working if we can't have the gas for our cars that makes it harder for us to defend the United States so mm-hmm. we can't have our remember it was beer I you know when's enough beer and meat packing so That's now it. we're what, a am, beer I, what and am I supposed to do I mean come Wine on and cheese what is this exactly. That's right. what is this thing so That's I think right. that yeah. I, I like where they're going it's you know, try something and and but I think appeals to patriotism. I think a little bit more conversation around this is good. And I yeah. think some kind of protection, if it's a if if it's a company that makes the that make that gives the information, I would like to see some kind of protection for information sharing for companies that share information. I, I think yeah. that's always to me that we see that as an impediment to working um, carefully on issues like this. Is that the worry is it's like Chief Wiggum in The Simpsons. You know, the the police are. Uh, powerless to help you, uh, but very, you know, very engaged if they think you've done something wrong. And that's an overstatement, but uh, they, there's a lot that the government would need to do at the federal level to change folks' mind that, that they're there to help. Yeah. You know what I was just thinking? You just, you said it, appeal to patriotism. We're fighting the, you know, this is, the, there are foreign actors running around, destroying yeah. our critical infrastructure, taking down things. You know who we need? We we need Patrick Swayze and we need Charlie Sheen. We need the, we, we need, need Wolverine. the Wolverines. We need we 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 need the cyber version of the Wolverines to fight this new Red Dawn here that's happening today. And now, but look, there's also and there's there's ten million Somalians for those that take that 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 land that first blow against the uh, the the. the I invaders. think that's what we need. We need a movie that is sort of a a like a Red Dawn style movie where it's a, a group of kids, you know, in a high school hacking program who the whole grid gets shut down, but because they're on, you know, solar power, they're still up and their satellite connection's still going and they've got to save the U.S. from Russian cyber hackers. We'll call it, you know, Red Dawn. There was a second Red Dawn. We'll have to come up with a good name, you know, Red, Red, uh, yeah. Red Evening or something like that. Instead of Red Dawn, and we'll stock <laughs> it. We'll evening. stock it with whoever the top kids are today working in the industry. And I feel like that will do more than ten million dollars will ever do. Done. Print, print it. Call it. your contacts, Ernie and Pablo. Let's go. Yep. Let's get this thing going. 
Done. I'm, I'm in. Count me in. Done. I love it. I tell you what, you know, I think we're on to something. I think we're really, I think this is, this is where it's going to go. Um, you know, I, I think this is going to be great because, you know, who needs, who knows better than a red evening than I got nothing. That's I like, how about red, it's, red, it's, red dusk. on the name. We're going to call it red dusk. Red dusk. Yes. Right. Yes. The red dusk. And with that said, we're going to take a quick break. When we return, we're going to talk to uh, Greg, our guest today from University of West Florida, about his journey from an elementary school kid with an Atari 800XL to his current research scientist role at the University of West Florida. And if past shows are any good indicator, we may delve into his preferred method of transportation. Uh, Spoiler alert, Prince sang a song about it, and it has nothing to do with a red slash raspberry beret. Have an idea for a guest or topic? Send an email to info at nopasswordpodcast.com. Okay, welcome back. Our guest today is Dr. Greg Hall, a research scientist at the Institute for Human Machine Cognition and uh, University of West Florida, UWF. Welcome to No Password Required. Thank you. Glad to be here. So you live up now up in uh, Pensacola, Florida, huh? I'm in Pensacola, Florida, again, for the second time in my life, uh, second jaunt through here. Uh, actually moved to Pensacola when I was a high school kid, went to Gulf Breeze High School, and, and eventually went to University of West Florida, studied computer science, uh, enjoyed being in academia so much I decided to stick around, got the master's degree, uh, thought while I was at it, it was a good time to continue, get my doctorate at the University of Idaho. Started my first career at what was then Southwest Texas State University in San Marcos, Texas. It got rebranded as Texas State University, still in San Marcos. Uh, taught there for nine years and eventually uh, got into a field that became known as digital forensics as my research area. That led me into a new career in government contracting and did that for about 12 years and the opportunity came to return to Pensacola, uh, live near my parents again, and work for my alma mater, uh, the University of West Florida at the Center for Cybersecurity with my joint appointment to the Institute for Human Machine Cognition. Well, that's, uh, you know, that's really, really cool to see that you're able to, you know, journey around and then come back to Pensacola um, at the, at the, at the, the Institute up there. Uh, so it, I noticed you, you're working now with uh, you're interested in machine learning and uh, artificial intelligence. Um, and how does that link? You know, how, do, how does the work you're doing you tie into you, with this? I'll call it this. I'm going to use a good a good uh, a good term. Cyber nexus. What's the cyber nexus here with uh, uh, with human human machine learning and cyber and all of that bringing it together? Um, and then uh, tie it together with uh, in Pensacola. Uh, because that seems like an interesting place for all of these, uh, all of this to come together. Well, I'll say when I finished my undergraduate degree and my master's at the University of West Florida, the Institute for Human Machine Cognition existed, and it was on main campus as part of the university run by uh, Dr. Ken Ford. And so I worked uh, and was friends with a lot of the people in his lab. I was focused more in the software engineering field. And so the artificial intelligence and the expert systems that he was doing uh, were kind of outside of my focus area at the time. But as most things progress, they start to come back together. 
and in the field of software engineering. And as I got into digital forensics and started to learn more about uh, cyber threats and malware analysis and those other types of uh, subfields of it, um, you start to deal with massive quantities of data. As a malware analyst and the millions of pieces of malware that come along, uh, it was very common that I would be working doing reverse engineering on a piece of malware, which was, for all intents and purposes, identical to a piece of malware that a colleague was working on in the same cubicle. But because the hashes didn't match, we didn't know until we started diving into it that we were at both really researching the exact sample, the exact same sample. And as a result, I started to think, you know, how could I find patterns and commonalities within this binary that would allow me to detect that overlap of, you know, highly similar samples? And that's where things like machine learning uh, and expert systems, artificial intelligence, they start to come into play. And those are kind of rebrandings of multivariate statistical analysis, factor analysis, clusters, et cetera, uh, that have existed for a number of years. But those mathematical techniques are being applied now in new technologies that are better known by their more modern mainstream titles. So this, the technology allows you to make a match between two pieces of malware that have different hash values, but are otherwise functioning in the same way. Yeah, that's the, the simplest version of the first prototype I made did exactly that. And all I did to make that possible was to use a reverse engineering library. In this case, it's called Capstone, a module for Python. And I was able to get a disassembly listing of a Win32 binary. And what I would do is I would break that into slices, essentially the functions of the code. I would then generalize them into... Uh, basically, I take the assembly instruction and replace its operators, or operands rather, with the type of operand. So if it was an immediate or if it were a register or an address, uh, I would just generalize each instruction and then do, say, an MD5 hash of that slice. And then I could take two different programs and see how many of those slices uh, lined up. So is this... Are you, what you're describing, is this sort of your PhD work, or is this after that? Where are we in, your, in the life cycle when you were working on this, uh, Dr. Hall? So that was well after my academic okay. days. Um, oddly enough, the academic dissertation for my PhD was a form of reverse engineering, but it was to extract design artifacts from source code for legacy systems. So I was looking at the dynamics of those systems and which pieces would get invoked when which other pieces would happen to kind of lift that ancient architecture that's probably not documented anywhere uh, to then be able to show the internal workings of those of those old systems so you're talking about this in the you know digital forensics and kind of pulling you know, reverse engineering um, do you think of yourself kind of as like the Indiana Jones of uh, cyberspace, uh, uncovering, you know, once great civilizations in the uh, in the code and then bringing it back to life, or at least try to understand it? I mean, is there some sort? Of, I, there has to be some sort of uh, some sort of parallel there. I mean, at, at least if you if you say yes, then you know, I, I think you get to carry a whip, but that's a whole other story. Well, I do have the hat. Um, See, now it's, there you go. It, exactly. It's less, 
it's less the uh, Harrison Ford hat. It's more the <laughs> Timothy Oliphant uh, hat from Justified. But it still okay. <laughs> it, it still works. Um, yeah, I I would say that when you are given an unknown file by someone, and the work I was doing in uh, malware analysis was for the Air Force, and a lot of the samples I would get would come from their Office of Special Investigation. So there was some excitement uh, and romance to it because sometimes even the agents didn't know what they were giving us. And so then we would get to tear it apart and tell them, no, this is boring, there's nothing here at all. Or we would find out this is some type of an implant, this is some malicious piece of software, and here's what it's uh, possible for it to do. And that was exciting work and beneficial work because you, you felt you were making a contribution. How much is it like uh, NCIS, I mean, working for the Air Force? Because I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a Marine, I come from the Naval Service, and I can tell you that uh, Mark Harmon and that whole NCIS thing, that's exactly the way it is in the, in, in, in the world uh, but <laughs> you from, from the Air Force side. How, I mean, how, how similar is it? Is it like uh, CSI? Uh, does people come up and take their glasses off, and that means the killer was you? <laughs> Well, um, it was impressive to see these guys get to waltz right into a skiff or other secure facility with their guns, uh, without anybody stopping them, to see them walking around without any insignia on because they don't wear their rank, so no general or anybody can you know, tell them or, or order them about. Uh, it's, uh, I'm sure it's a very exciting lifestyle, um, I didn't serve myself. I wasn't on that side of the badge, uh, but I have a lot of friends who were, um, got to go out because I was living in Texas, got to go to the shooting range with them and uh, see them use their guns and get to shoot at the paper targets with them. So when you, when you were in that role and you were working with the Air Force and you, know, you cracked what it was that you were looking at, you know, maybe you can't tell us this, but when it was an interesting artifact, what would happen next? Where would it go? What would happen once you made that identification? Well, the result of the analysis would be a report as this is where it becomes boring. This is where it becomes government processes, right? Like once you've cracked it and you figured out what it's capable of, what it's trying to do to a system, then what you do is you write a report, but you have to write the report for someone who at certain points is not going to be a technical person. And that becomes the challenge of telling, and not to call out the generals, but usually a general, uh, you'd have to give some pictures, you'd have to make it clear, and not because generals aren't smart people, but because they're very busy people and they're not typically technical, technically oriented people. How do you get better at that skill? Because it's one thing to be trained in a very deep level and, and to be creative with, on the technology side, and it's another thing to be an excellent writer and a communicator. How did you, you know, develop both those skills at the same time? Well, I think I rely heavily on my academic background and the fact that my first career was as an academician, as a college professor in a technical field. So for a number of years, I was teaching while I was in graduate school, and then I taught professionally for nearly 10 years. Um, that's where I kind of honed that experience. And even in classes with colleagues, you know, I was usually a pretty bright guy getting good grades, and so people would come to me and ask for help with the homework. 
and I would have to find other ways to clarify something. So if the way the professor hadn't explained it, or if the way the textbook covered it wasn't getting the point across, I'd have to find some other metaphor or allegory or something that brought that concept home to that person. And it's just, uh, I think maybe there's a inherent skill, like a trait people have of being able to explain complex issues more simply without being condescending, I hope, most of the time. Uh, and then part of it is just, is just rep repetition. What kind of research projects are you working on now, Dr. Hall? Uh, so I've got a grant funded currently by MXD, which is Manufacturing Times Digital. And this particular grant is to build what I've called the Cyber Threat Mission Model. Uh, what it seeks to do is allow non-cyber security experts to come up with scripts and scenarios for cyber threats that could target uh, manufacturing shop floors, uh, critical infrastructure, uh, systems of that nature. Uh, so it's going to have a GUI. Um, I say it's going to have. We've got a prototype in place as the grant has already be begun. Uh, it's going to be pulling threat intelligence feeds from things like the MITRE attack framework, uh, Open Threat Exchange, uh, even some data from VirusTotal. Uh, you name it, we're going to try to tap into it, CVEs. And all that information uh, is going to go into kind of a machine learning and recommendation system so that if you tell me your shop floor has these types of resources, on, uh, we'll start to build out a virtual network with this type of IT assets and these CNC machines and these controllers, et cetera, then a suggestion engine will look at those and look at data from the CVEs and whatnot and say, hey, these are the stages of cyber attack. These are the types of TTPs that are common against your type of an infrastructure. And then you can just drag and drop into the uh, stages of the mission. Uh, the output will become a script, which right now is in JSON and becomes automatable to a message broker-based agent framework that sends these actions out into that virtual environment and simulates the execution of that threat mission against the environment. So who's the user of that end product? Is it going to be a business person, a, a CISO type person, or, or how much technical training would be required to sort of understand that output? So if I do my job well, there won't be <laughs> a, a heavy technical burden and need to understand cybersecurity on the end user. Um, the anticipated user of the system, first and foremost, would be your security people for, say, a manufacturing company. Uh, we're definitely looking at the cyber supply chain and looking at the smaller companies, the mom and pops, who are really good at building whatever widget it is that they manufacture, but they don't necessarily have the large staff in cybersecurity and the IT experience. So they're highly super focused on what they do, but we need them to be able to evaluate the defenses that they've got in place and understand what types of attacks they might be susceptible to. And as they grow or as they have to be in compliance with federal regulations to be part of these larger contracts, uh, allow them to uh, experiment and run and simulate certain types of things happening, uh, maybe even a ransomware attack 
as a simple one to, to simulate, uh, and what would happen to their environment. Uh, part of the infrastructure that we're building, if we get it correct, is we would run these cyber missions one stage at a time. And if you think of the Lockheed Martin cyber kill chain as a simpler example, you know, we could start with reconnaissance, move forward through the mission. At the end of each mission stage, there would be an entire system snapshot, if you will, um, taken, and then we would advance to the next stage. And that would enable us after we run a part of the mission, and if it's successful, revert to snapshot, change some of our defensive tools, uh, put some new signatures in place, what have you, and then try to rerun that same mission stage and see if we were able to block it or detect it uh, more quickly. Well, that's outstanding, because that, that is something we've talked about before um, on the show here, where we have increasing regulation or guidance from the government for its federal contractors that might be one thing for a Lockheed Martin to apply, more challenging as you go down the subcontractor chain and you end up with small but highly specialized manufacturing businesses that just don't have the resources to develop it all the way out. And so this does sound like something that will allow for a lot of experimentation and usable data on the output side that could help those smaller businesses that are doing highly specialized work stay compliant um, and stay operating, frankly. Yeah, and as a... Uh you kind of alluded to there, you know, these small businesses, which in a lot of these uh, government contracts get some preference to be, you know, funded. We want to help the, the smaller shops in addition to the large uh, contracting agencies. Those smaller businesses, they become the weakest link, and that's where the adversaries head. And they try to get their implants or corrupt the system in some way at that weakest point. And so we've got to do what we can to, to lock that down. And Dr. Hall, can you tell us a little bit about just a step back in your in your career before even college? You know, did you know you wanted to work with computers? Tell us a little bit about how you got involved at an early stage with with working in programming and with software engineering. Well, uh, it all began when my dad brought home an Atari 800XL home computer from the Navy Exchange one day. He had uh, finally. <laughs> decided that computers were going to be the wave of the future. This is probably like 1982 or thereabouts that this happens. And when we unpack this thing and connect it to the little color TV in the living room, and I start typing on the keys, and I see what I'm pressing on the keyboard appear on the TV screen, that was sheer magic. Everybody takes that for granted these days. But like I was impacting what was happening on the television. That had never happened in my entire life. And in the owner's manual, the first thing they had was a small line-numbered basic program that, you know, 10, this and that, 20, whatever. Just a series of statements with these numbers in front of them. I had no idea what they meant, but I typed every one of them in, and then I typed run, and this jagged lightning bolt appeared on the screen. <laughs> and what I knew had to be actual thunder came out of the TV speaker. And I was just completely amazed that being able to just type in those keystrokes made something that impressive happen on that computer. And I was hooked then wondering, like, well, what other things can I type and what other things can I make this do? And my dad, for whatever reason, and I think he was smart in hindsight for this, uh, instead of buying me games, he bought me books that had source code listings of games. <laughs> So to play a game, I had to type in all of the code for the game. 
And of course I'd make errors and I'd have to go back and fix the code. I wouldn't necessarily know why it was an error. I would just know it didn't match what it was supposed to match. Um, and eventually I started picking up on how to code and taught myself how to program in basic poorly. Uh, but it was better than my friends who were out, you know, <laughs> playing in the sunshine and wasting their childhoods. I, I think that makes for a, one heck of an unboxing <laughs> video to put it in today's parlance that, uh, as we un unbox the old Atari computer, uh, that's, that's really amazing. So you, you started, you're essentially making your own, uh, making Pong and combat and all those, uh, those games for yourself. So I think that's, and then, and then you move on to Python, just like that. And I, sadly, I didn't go to Python until I got into the professional world around 2006 was the first time I actually started using Python. Uh, before that, I was all C, C++, assembly. Uh, that was most of the programming I was doing at the time. And I, the first time I used Python, I became very, very upset and angry at it because it was the first <laughs> time I had written a program and it worked. Like from start, <laughs> I sat down, I wrote the code and got ready to go into the debugging cycle and, and it worked. And I was beside <laughs> myself and it was so easy and it was so easy to read. And uh, now I'm, like I, I'm spoiled. I poured this cup of coffee for nothing. I was going to plan <laughs> on sitting here for four hours and now I have to go do something else. Yeah. You know, and you said that the hat was not the Indiana Jones hat, but yet your disdain for snakes slash python, <laughs> I, I think that the parallels are, are coming together here. I mean, that's just, that's just me. Why did it have to be snakes, right? Yeah, exactly. But, python. Um, Why did it have to be python? Again, well, I, may, I just brewed this cup of coffee. Of course, we all know uh, python is named for Monty Python and not actually for the snake. And the intention was for all the python developers to somewhere in the program make a nod to Monty Python. Well, you know, <laughs> African or European, right? You know, that's... I still I, I think that the best way to explain to someone who you know maybe doesn't do computers for a living but but touches them through their business is about how more complicated things have gotten from the early 80s to today is through video games or even through the graphics you know in in a movie but I think video games are amazing if you think about what a video game was like in 1982 versus what it's like now where you're playing cooperatively with no lag highly detailed on a mobile phone in a subway yeah, you think about what it right. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah exactly. From the little blips going across the screen, and the <laughs> it's extraordinary. Doctor Hall, a lot of a lot of our listeners, you know, play online gaming. Are you a gamer? If so, what are you playing now? What, what do you like to play? Well, I am an online gamer, and uh, people will be some people will be uh, disheartened to hear that I play on a console. Uh, I grew up playing on PCs <laughs> all of the time. Uh, and spent thousands and thousands of dollars on PC gaming rigs. And eventually, when it became my thousands of dollars that I was spending and not someone <laughs> else's, I realized it was much more cost-effective to buy an Xbox for about 500 bucks and replace it every five or 10 years uh, than to you know, keep buying the highest-end GPU, CPU, RAM yes. combination. Uh, now, of course, I won't buy a PC that's not gaming grade. Uh, yeah. But um, my online play is almost exclusively moved over at this point to Xbox, although I do have a PlayStation and a Nintendo Wii and the Switch and just about any other uh, console you can imagine. Uh, so still a huge gamer. That's a, a big part nice. of my love for technology. 
Uh, right now, uh, I try to play Borderlands 3 a lot. I love the online co-op types of games where I can get four of my friends in there and play against bots instead of teenagers with cat-like reflexes <laughs> uh, that, that destroy me. That's not, that's not fun. I think that the Wii that the Wii is you know was a huge change for making it family gaming and, and making it gaming with casual gaming as opposed to having to commit as much as I like to commit several hundred hours to something. <laughs> it is nice to be able to do it, and the Switch has been a lot of fun. We had a Switch about maybe six months ago, and we play it, you know, this sort of in-person co-op and then also online co-op. I just think the Switch is outstanding. It's a different way of playing games than playing it through a gaming rig. But I think it has made it more accessible, and its its massive success is clearly, you know, representative of that. So it's good to hear that even somebody who's knows how to do it from the computer perspective can still enjoy the switch. Oh, how about this? Let's put this out. Uh, if we see a, a convergence of machine learning, AI, uh, cyber, and gaming, uh, where do you see this? Do you think there's a? What do you think the future of uh, you know AI, machine learning, and gaming is? How does that come together? I mean, are we, are we talking to get super? I mean, is it going to get to be where it's no longer fun to play the game because you show up and the and the machine is just too good for you? Well, uh, interesting point you make there, because one of the biggest impediments, I think, to early online gaming was the weakness of the AI. Um, so when you would play against bots, they would do dumb things. Like they, it was the best AI that you could come up with at the time. But if you played some of those early versions of, say, Unreal Tournament or Quake against the computer yeah. bots, they would make silly choices at times, which was great as a player because I get to shoot someone in the face with a bazooka, which I wouldn't have been able to do. <laughs> which uh, is always fun, by the way. I mean, you know, even just I'm just saying. And then my personal thought about what happened in gaming was that the AI actually became the hurdle. They, they weren't able to make very smart opponents. And I believe that was the dawn of multiplayer online gaming, because now each bot is actually a person. It's, you know, it's being controlled by another meat brain out there. And so <laughs> all they're providing is the arena and then all of the intelligence at the dawn of Call of Duty and uh, the massive online battle arenas. Um, that's all you know, meat-powered intelligence. Um, so I think there are still advances definitely being made in the AI for gaming. Uh, but I think we kind of took a, a sidestep away from it and that led to a new group of people who became gamers. It's not just the antisocial folks like myself who went into the computer to get away from the outside world. These people, you know, nowadays will jump into these online games and that will be a big social interaction for them. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Hall. Uh, after a short break, we will return with Ernie's Lifestyle Polygraph. Stay with us. You are listening to the No Password Required Podcast. We cover cybersecurity and a lot of other stuff. All right, welcome back, Greg. As you may know, in the federal government, in order to obtain a national security clearance as a government civilian, you have to undergo something that is known as a lifestyle polygraph. That is a rigorous assessment of your ability uh, to determine your trustworthiness as well as your integrity. And to that end, we're going to subject you to no password required own version of it. Our, our own very own lifestyle polygraph. Are you ready for this? 
knowing what the real one's like, I think I'll be okay. Okay. <laughs> so these are very, uh, very in-depth probing questions. Um, they can be rather uncomfortable at times. As a matter of fact, this first one uh, will make probably some people very, uh, very squeamish. So I will put it to you. First question is, number one, what year, what year was the best Corvette released? Well, that's an easy one. It was the year mine was released. Uh, so that would be 2015, not the very first year of the seventh generation Corvette, which was 2014, but one year into it when they decided to release the Daytona Sunrise Orange color option, which was not available in 2014. And it's the best one because I purchased it. And it's also the best one because the first time I saw it, that type of uh, seventh generation Corvette, I had no idea what it was. I wasn't a sports car guy at the time. I really had no uh, following of Corvette as a type of a car. And I just saw this thing in my rearview mirror coming up on me on the highway in San Antonio one day, and it shot past me, and I just thought it was probably the most beautiful car I'd ever seen in my life. And as soon as I, well, sadly got to work, um, I started Googling what car that was, and I found out what it was. And uh, then I found out how much they cost. And to my surprise, I could almost sort of kind of swing it. And um, after looking at them for about a year, I finally decided I had to have one. And so I've, I've bought it back in 2015, and I've had it all this time, and I hope to have it until I die. So... Um... Does that mean, I mean, what generation are they on now? I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not a car guy, but I see some of the newer Corvettes going by. And, uh, and so, I, like, like you, I wouldn't have recognized it as a, as a Corvette. Yeah, so they've, uh, they've gotten off script a bit with their uh, design team because that seventh generation got rid of the Coke bottle-looking brake lights. Uh, that used to be uh, a defining characteristic of a Corvette is you'd have four round brake lights in the back, two on each side. And the seventh generation had these more spaceship looking things. And the current generation is the eighth generation, which just mm -hmm. came out in 2020. And it was revolutionary in that it is a mid-engined car, the first mid-engine yeah. Corvette. Uh, other mid-engine cars are Lamborghinis and Ferraris. Uh, Porsche has arguably moved to a uh, mid-engine. They actually were rear engine, but they moved the engine about six inches forward, and so now they qualify as being mid-engined as well. And they do that just so that the car has a better center of balance, corners better, and without the big engine at the front, the driving position moves forward. So they make better track cars. Now, speaking of track cars, it brings us to our next question. Next question. What is, what is the greatest, the number one, top shelf, what is the greatest racing series in the world? Well, if we're going to talk about racing series, then I would go to the FIA World Endurance Cup, which has as one of its races the 24 Hours of Le Mans, which Aha. is going to be run this Steve year. Steve McQueen. Will be run this year next month in August. And in 2015, the GT Le Mans class was won by the Corvette Stingray, seventh generation. Um, so, I mean, it was meant to be, it, kismet. 
<laughs> this August will be the eighth generation Corvette's debut at Le Mans. And the reason I pick it is my favorite racing series. I'm sure there are a bunch of NASCAR fans cursing my name uh, that are listening to this right now. Yeah, you better watch it living um, here in Florida, man. But the, the fact that the race runs a full 24 hours and the endurance, I mean, it's, having driven on a track before and felt the G-forces of being pinned against the door going around a curve, understanding that this team of people does that for 24 hours straight and the car itself has to endure all of those forces and survive a full 24 hours. Uh, it's just an amazing thing to see and witness, uh, especially as it goes overnight, you know, and it gets dark out and the teams are trying to catch sleep here and there. Um, it's, uh, I would imagine it a very rewarding and grueling thing to be a part of. And the engineering support for an operation like that over 24 hours is pretty extraordinary, too, to keep the car running, keep everybody up and safe and alert and watching it. I think that's, it's a heck of an endurance. Um, and it's been running for years. I mean, it's, it's generations and generations. It, it has a great history. And I think uh, uh, if you, a decent film on it is uh, uh, Ford versus Ferrari. That's a, that's a, that's a, I think that gives you some really good insight into into the, like you said, the, the technology behind it, the, the support staff behind it, the energy that these companies put behind it. Uh, but no, that's that's great, and, and I think that's a uh, we don't talk about a, we don't talk much about that uh, those racing series because again we're stuck here in in NASCAR country. You know, God bless it. You know, uh, you know, no, no offense to the folks up there in Indianapolis, but uh, you know we are across the peninsula from Daytona, so we have to give props there. Um, <laughs> I, I think that I think. I have it. I have in my mind where you're going to go with this next question, but I, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to put it to you based upon some of our discussions. Okay, which which item would you rather reverse engineer, given your background? The flux capacitor or an Iron Man suit? Hmm. Well, I'd love to have an Iron Man suit. I'm not going to lie, <laughs> but I also think like part of me is like the hacker thinks I could maybe cheat a little bit with the flux capacitor, right? So if I RE a little bit of it. Marty. Well, you know, if I RE a part of it and it takes me five years to come to a, a breakthrough, right? Then I hop in the DeLorean and I go back five years and I give myself the breakthrough, right? Isn't that, yes. but it doesn't that violate the, the, the premise? I mean, aren't you not, you're not supposed to bet on sports. You're gonna alter the future, Marty. Your parents are gonna be out of existence. I'm a hacker. What I'm supposed to do is break <laughs> the rules of use. I'm supposed to violate the uh, the warranties on things. <laughs> the very Plus laws of the, nature! You get the DeLorean with it, which I don't think the DeLorean ever won Le Mans, the 24 hours. Just, I don't think so. No, it did not. Um, uh, I, I think it was the steel body. That's what threw it off. It was too, too heavy. Too heavy. An Iron Man suit, I mean, it, at the end of the day, it still relies on being made of metal to for its defenses. I mean, it, it, it has the Jarvis AI in there, which would be pretty cool to spend time with, I think, and a lot of offensive weaponry. But the thing gets dented from time to time, whereas the flux capacitor, I mean, once you solve it once, you you control all of time, frankly. So I, I think the ultimate power of the flux capacitor kind of puts it in the lead there. Plus, you get all these conundrums. Get to play around with. Yeah, see, now we're delving into the deep end of, uh, we, we mentioned, uh, you know, the story of quantum and uh, time travel and, and such. And yes, I, 
That, I think, is a, is a discussion for a future podcast or maybe a past podcast. If you, if you, pick, if you pick the wrong one, pick the flux capacitor every time because if you pick the wrong one with the flux capacitor, you can always go back and pick, and pick the Iron Man suit. That's <laughs> and now we have our own version of how time travel works. I love it. I love it. So speaking of time travel, which has nothing to do with our next question, um, number four, during your childhood, which toy, and these are classic, I mean, I, again, I don't understand why these things were taken off, uh, off the shelves. These are classics. Uh, were you, which toy were you most likely to be injured by? The sit and spin, which is that, which is that uh, it's essentially a disc that you sit on and you crank your hands around and you, you whip yourself around until you throw up, uh, or the classic... Uh, lawn darts, otherwise known as their commercial name as jarts, which are a, it's a, it's about a foot long dart with a heavy metal head and a point on the end and then these plastic fins and then you'd have to pitch them uh, from one end to a hoop down the other. Uh, and of course, your, your other teammate would be standing on the other end of it so that you could kind of pitch it in their direction. Th- th- for those of you who aren't familiar with the the classic sit and spin or uh, lawn darts. So, Greg, which one would you more likely have been injured by? If we get our flux capacitor, you could travel back in time to tell your tell your tell your your nine year old self, "Hey, put down the what?" Well, um, since I was injured by it, the definitive answer would be the sit and spin. Uh-huh. But I, I couldn't really blame the sit and spin because I would spin until I lost grip on the center of the sit and spin, and then I'd bounce my head off the linoleum on the kitchen floor and, you know, wake up a little bit later and try again. Where the lawn darts, um, now I think in the manual they told you not to stand at the target end when you're throwing the darts. But, of course, all my friends, we were, you know, nerdy engineer types, and we knew it was far more efficient for the red darts to be thrown to the far end, and the other team at that end had the other darts, and I had their hoop where I was. And so we were just hucking these darts at each other. Um, I think we were just lucky enough to, uh, or had the reflexes good enough to avoid any uh, serious permanent injury. Um, But, you know, that said, these being my childhood toys, it wasn't always clear I was going to go far in school. (laughs) It's something about the lawn dart, you know, it's dangerous when you're using it. Whereas the sit and spin, it's danger doesn't become immediately apparent. And so I think I had the same experience that you did, Greg, where, where on the sit and spin, also I used the spit and spin, sit and spin for years longer than I think I probably should have. I still have one. I do do it at home (laughs) If I had unlimited funds, I would commission an adult size sit and spin for my home. Uh, It was the greatest toy. And to my sheer amazement, you can still get one at Walmart or on Amazon.com. I am not suggesting anyone do this for their children, <laughs> but those they're still for sale. It's okay. You can say incredible. that. Jack's a lawyer. He can get us out of anything that happens. That's incredible. Us. That's awesome. I'm going to go get one. That's, that's a birthday event. That's the next <laughs> birthday event. The sit and spin is coming into the house. So uh, bear in mind there, uh, you know, Pablo, when, when, uh, when, when Jack can't make the next uh, podcast because he's in the hospital for a head, head injury, we'll, we'll know what happened. <laughs> it comes with a helmet and a mouth guard now. That's, you know, that's a little bit different. That's right. 
<laughs> okay, and our fifth and final question. When asked if you have bin binged watched anything, you said yes. All the classics. Then you mentioned three shows that I assume that you consider classics. The three shows are Cheers, which again is a fine show about uh, life in a bar in Boston. Fine show. MASH, the story of an army, a mobile army surgical hospital during the Korean War, the show lasting much longer than the Korean War itself. And ALF, the story of Gordon Shumway, an alien who resides in, in, in suburbia, United States. Out of the three of those, uh, two, I think, clearly stand ahead. I mean, they, they are award-winning shows. Uh, one, uh, there is, uh, it, it gets into a gray area, uh, that being ALF. Uh, how do you go about, can you sell us on why ALF should be considered a classic? So that's a good question. And uh, yeah, I, I think it could be controversial to a lot of people to put it in there with the classics. I mean, uh, there are plenty of like really fine pieces of television. Barney Miller, which I'm rewatching. Oh, days. yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, Mick, yeah, Abe Vigoda, Fish. Yeah, yeah. Nick uh, so, Yamana. I mean, so, come on. So, how do I put Alf, this. Yeah, on puppet, that same plane. This That's alien right. puppet on the same level. And from a societal message standpoint, no, you, you can't even possibly go there, right? I mean, MASH. Of course and, not. <laughs> uh, and Barney Miller, they, they had life lessons for you. ALF did a little bit. Um, partly for me, it was just the time, the 80s, the fact that uh, it was something that my whole family would watch. My dad would sit down and he found it funny. My mom, my brother, so the whole family uh, would be into that show. MASH I love, but at that young age, I didn't really understand everything that was going on in MASH, right? I watch it now and I can appreciate uh, that they're in a war and what all of that means. Uh, so for me, at my youth, I think it was the fact that it appealed to the entire family. I think that it had toys. So you could get Toy Alf at the local store. Uh, there are all types of different uh, products and cereals and eventually he even had a uh, Saturday morning cartoon. Yeah, so, you didn't have the Sam Malone action figure. Yeah, yeah, you, you didn't, didn't, you didn't. You didn't have that. You didn't get that. <laughs> and then the one thing I would say also in defense of ALF, it had the most clever plot mechanic in a storyline I think I have ever encountered. And there was an episode where ALF was getting fat. He was getting overweight. But, like, what do you do with a puppet? Like, do we have to start making more and more bigger <laughs> ALF puppets. And the way the writers handled the situation was that he didn't get bigger, he got denser. So when ALF's <laughs> weight got completely out of control, he could no longer move. He had become so dense. So, so, <laughs> so it becomes a density problem. And nice. I thought that was brilliant. Um, I love it. <laughs> you watch the show and you forget that he's a puppet. And that, that, I think, is part of the genius of it, whereas it, it has a very silly plot line, and you, can, and you can talk about it being about assimilation, about diversity, about, about being, them being welcomed as someone who's a stranger. But you forget, as you watch it, 
that he's a puppet. So I, I think they integrated it very well. And it opened the door for Dinosaurs, that short-lived all-puppet show, which I think is an, a highly underrated. Yeah, that one um, didn't go, that one didn't stick around. It was like no. Archie Bunker became a Tyrannosaurus Rex or whatever. That's was. right, but, but Alf <laughs> opened the door to yeah. that. And he also uh, brought forth a, a, new, a new era of uh, anti-cat people, which was, I thought, was, uh, you know. I forgot about yeah. that. He eats cats, right? He's, he, he is a human functioning and intelligent life form, but he doesn't understand that you can't eat the family pet. He just, he's, he's got a thing for it. Yeah, yeah. All right, we're going to be, be re-watching this this weekend. Thank you, Greg, for that. <laughs> so... I think that's uh, that brings us to the end of uh, the lifestyle polygraph. I mean, I don't know where you go after uh, if we've we've covered a lot of ground. We've gone all kinds of places. Uh, I think, uh, Greg, we've learned a little bit about you and you know what makes you tick. Um, so uh, you know, I, I really can't say thank you enough for joining us. Um, if our, any of our listeners wanted to uh, connect with you, uh, how would they go about doing that? Well, I would say the easiest way is via my email address, which is ghall, first initial, last name, at uwf.edu. That's, uh, I'm, I'm always checking my email. It pops up on my phone. So it's as uh, good as any other mechanism. All right, great. And so uh, when, we're, uh, when we're up on the road up there in greater Pensacola, we'll keep an eye out for a Corvette weaving in and out of traffic, uh, blasting the music from ALF. Um, and so uh, we'll know exactly what's going on. So, all right, coming up next, Pablo Torres will bring in a high-powered corporate lawyer. His number one target, Harvey Specter. Will he be able to land the sharp-dressing and charismatic attorney who loyally defends those whom he feels are deserving? Stick around and find out. There's a place for everyone in the world of cybersecurity, and Pablo Torres plans to prove it. Welcome to Positively Cyber. Welcome to Positively Cyber. I'm your host, Pablo Torres. On today's episode, we're going to discuss the importance of a strong backbone. No, I'm not talking about lumbar support for your desk chair. I'm talking about mental fortitude, complemented by a resilient personality that is entrusted with the well-being of the corporate livelihood of our fictitious organization. When things really hit the fan, who are we going to call? No, no, I'm not referring to Ray Parker Jr.'s Ghostbuster anthem. Better yet said, we're talking about our fervent corporate legal counsel, our beacon of hope when all cyber legal matters arise. Let's be honest, with the team that we have built within our organization, we have rounded up some of the strongest, most unorthodox personalities that the information security industry could ever conjure. For the sole purpose of addressing the most pressing cybersecurity needs, Saying the very least, we have John Wick, aka the Baba Yaga, as our red team penetration testing lead. If this doesn't even bring up the slightest bit of concern, as far as risk mitigation goes, you must have not heard about the coal fire fiasco in 2019. We in no way can afford to lose John Wick due to a clerical error being erroneously processed. And when time is of the essence, concise, stern communication based on factual evidence is the most priceless skill that any of our team members could possess. The saying in this field is, it is not if, but when, which ironically happens to be a tried and tested saying within the InfoSec industry, especially so after a publicized compromised data breach that is disclosed. 
We are always on alert for the next major incident, always on standby to resolve the next major ransomware breach. We are always searching for new data pointing us towards the next major threat. And once that threat is identified, we are always compiling a batch of fresh indicators of compromise to scrub our client's ecosystem to ensure structural integrity. We aim to ensure that no nefarious intent or actions are ever witnessed. And if they are, our intentions are to respond swiftly and proactively. Our concern is how can we maintain operational efficiency while also ensuring that our litigation needs are met? That's a great question. One that I hope to really dive into. With that being said, we're going to dive into what upholds the confidentiality, integrity, and availability of a transparent framework with this addition. To do so, we must suit up. I'm not talking about a hazmat suit or a janitorial suit used as a disguise to conduct a physical penetration assessment at an on-site client location. I'm talking about a corporate suit, or in this case, the corporate suit, from the hit TV series suit, Harvey Specter. The reason we propose the addition of a keenly astute legal counsel to our fictitious organization is simply due to the ever-dynamic game of cat and mouse that is played within this industry. Harvey says it best, don't play the odds, play the man on the other side of the table, or in our instance, the keyboard. Especially so after the Kaseya VSA ransomware attack. We need an attorney that's going to step up at a moment's notice to litigate on our entity's behalf. In case we were to ever become victim of a malicious threat actor group looking to extort us for financial gain. Harvey is known as the best closer in New York City. Why is that? Because his focus is on action after action. It's in our human nature to set goals. Sometimes we miss, sometimes we hit. We learn from both. We set our sights forward and take action toward new goals. This is how businesses grow. As Harvey says, I don't have dreams, I have goals. This is the mindset that we must have on our roster when confronting malicious actors such as the Rebel, or better said as the malicious actors behind the Sodi no Kibi private ransomware as a service operation that most recently caused widespread downtime for over a thousand companies. We do not have the capacity for that. The role of a privacy and cybersecurity lawyer is to advise on implementing strategies that meet state, federal, and international legal requirements. This individual is to serve as the quarterback and crisis manager during incident response to mitigate loss and ensure compliance with the law. There is no margin for error with this addition. And for that reason, we require the best to comply with the three big areas of concern for cybersecurity law. Number one, assisting clients preparing for the cyber attacks, including contracting and intellectual property protection and compliance. Number two, incident response. And most importantly, number three, post-breach litigation, including consumer class actions and government investigations. Harvey, we welcome you aboard. Mr. Spector, you are a smooth talking scotch drinking enigma. We need someone who chooses to focus on solutions rather than wallow in despair. Operate from your measured sense of what is right and wrong and execute. Make your decisions in repose rather than bend in the moment to what sounds good. Welcome to our family. Let's get to work. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Pablo Torres. And wow, Jack, this is like right in your field. I, I'm, I'd be interested to, to hear what you That's say right. uh, about... Uh, about uh, uh, Mr. Uh, Counselor Specter, um, and uh, because uh, you know, I don't know. We do we have room in our organization for two smooth talking Scotch drinking guys? I, I mean, you being the other one, of course. I, well, I don't know if you drink Scotch, but uh, uh, but you sure are a smooth talker. 
Not right now. I'm not drinking one <laughs> right now. That's, see, that's the kind of lawyering you ex- I answered the question directly, but, not, but narrowly. I, I think what you said about a focus on solutions and not despair is really important in an attorney in an incident response. It comes up from time to time where the individual actors in the company are pointing fingers at one another instead of putting the finger uh, in, in the dike, so to speak, to stop the problem. So that's, that's part of what the outside attorney's job is when there is a breach incident, which is, all right, who are the people I'm working with? Uh, what are the different personalities that are here? And how can I get them, instead of blaming each other, how can I get them to work in the same direction? So a lot of times, you know, we use our understanding of the law and our experience here to help essentially project manage uh, the breach response incident. When, when, when you were saying Harvey, I thought you were going to say, Harvey Birdman, attorney at law, from the Adult Swim show, uh, and the former Hanna Barbera, who is not as skilled an attorney as Harvey Specter is from Suits. So I'm glad you took the Harvey in, in this direction and not and not the other direction. But I I think about Harvey Birdman probably once a week in doing my own job as a lawyer, uh, just and the theme song in particularly. But. Harvey Specter is a good pick for this, I think. Two things I will quibble with, and we'll have to talk with him before he onboards. Okay, the first is you have to be scrupulously honest. You don't have to answer every question, but if you answer a question, you got to tell it truthfully. And sometimes Harvey Specter allows bluffs to go a little further than I would be comfortable with with an attorney on, on the teams that I work on. And the second is the drinking. And this is part of, there is this myth that lawyers drink, and maybe some do, but you've got to be so careful particularly if you're a breach response lawyer, is that I could get a call at one in the morning. I could get it. I've gotten calls when I've been at Bush Gardens. I've gotten calls on vacation. You have to be ready to use your judgment. And sometimes your judgment is, I'm not in a position where I can help you. Call somebody else. But I feel like there's a there's. It is exciting and cool what we do. And breach response work as an attorney is really exciting and a lot of fun. But you can't have like a tumbler of scotch at the end of every day because a client is going to call you. Like, in fact, there's, if you if you want a client to call you, the best thing to do is probably have a drink of scotch because that's a good way to guarantee <laughs> it. But I think otherwise, he fits the right, Pablo, he fits the right profile, right? He's a take charge kind of person. He knows when to let the witness be the star. I'm not the star of the breach response, right? It might be the CISO, it might be the CFO. Frankly, on a lot of engagements, it's the insurance person, the chief risk officer who's the star of the show. So, you know, part of why he's a good trial lawyer in the show suits is because when he puts a witness on, he lets the good witnesses talk and he knows when to make it about him and not about him. And that's a balance you need for an attorney too. So uh, I think he's also, I think in the show, he's also a former prosecutor. I think, I think he came out of the New York DA's office. And so we've got, I mean, just at Carlton Fields, I think we have three or four um, folks in the cyber group who are former prosecutors uh, and understand that, and we joke around, and I was—I think even on the show today, I was joking around about you know the government being powerless to help you, but that's not really, you know, that's an exaggeration. Most of the time, it's well-meaning folks who are going to help you when you speak with them in the middle of a, of a breach incident. And I think having someone who has worked and knows that and isn't, an attorney who's antagonistic to the government isn't going to help you at all, um, because nine times out of 10 or 49 out of 50, it's all well-meaning people who want to do a good job and, and who are trying to, to, to row on the same side as you are. So I love it. I love Harvey Specter joining the team. Pablo, I think he's got the right things, but we're going to talk to him a little bit about his use of the truth, and we're going to talk to him about his drinking before we, before we give him that offer. Yeah, most certainly so. We work with 
we have a uh, at the height of the pandemic one of the one of the uh, external resources and consulting firms that we work with a lot on our client engagements the lead researcher for for one of the teams was living out of a van so he had been working in a brick and mortar office but he was working out of a van and he would be on zooms and his background would sometimes fade we'd find out where he was or he'd have a real background we thought was <laughs> fake so the, the cyber industry is a mobile one, if you, if, you know, because these guys know how to run their own security, so they're pretty comfortable with it. So, so some pretty, you know, he- headline, well-known in the industry names, at least this one team we were working with uh, was actually living, living, living the van living life. The, living the van life. Now, you know, back when I was a kid, living the van life had a whole other uh, thing with it. There were teardrop-shaped windows and airbrushed horses on the side of said van and the occasional high-pile shag carpet. Um, but uh, <laughs> no, this was, this was a, yeah, let, I wasn't meaning to invoke <laughs> that particular, uh, I think I did, but th- this was yeah. pretty high tech. This was more like, this was more like, uh, what is it like tiny house nation yeah, kind yeah. of thing? It's come a long it was way. pretty well kitted out and, yeah. and pretty secure, but that's it. That's the thing too about it is you have to have the anecdote and you have to have something to make it exciting because if you're the outside lawyer and you get brought in. Everyone wants to call you. All your calls are returned for seven days. And then once the internal cyber team has their handle on it, the media relations folks have a plan in place, and the CFO has a sense of the total dollar amount that's at risk, suddenly no one's interested anymore. Another crisis has come on with this organization and your yesterday's news. And so part of what you have to do is find a way to make it exciting and find a way to keep everyone's interest after that initial triage is over. And a Harvey Specter-like character knows the techniques for doing that and knows the techniques for staying interesting yes. after the initial wave of response is over. So that's part of it too. And, you know, being able to get on and, you know, the, the open uh, team's invitation and meet with the guy who's in the van, as silly as that sounds, on that uh, on on those matters, the business side people from the client were like, I want to see is that, that guy in a van? So they would all dial into the meeting. Yeah, and you're Wait. thinking, what are we doing here? So there there's a part of it that, uh, you've you got to have that international man of mystery type thing going on there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, no, this is, and this is, I, we've talked about it a lot, but th- these are times when, you know, your clients kind of get, they don't always want to see you. And then wait till the litigation starts, and then they really don't want to talk to you about it. But uh, we try to make it fun. You know, we try to always be predictable about what things are going to cost. And I think that those are two techniques that, that, that help us keep our clients happy with the work we do for them. And Harvey Specter's got that. Well, you mentioned sure. two things that you like to do to keep your clients happy. Uh, we do one of them, and that's keep it fun. As far as present the actual costs, <laughs> we have no idea what this actually is costing us. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that. with that said, I think that brings us to the end of this program. And so thank you all for joining us, first and foremost. i got to say thank you to uh, the, my co-host, Jack Clabby and Pablo Torres. Also, thank you to our guest, Dr. Greg Hall. And if you're ever up in Pensacola and you see a time-traveling Corvette and a guy and an, uh, an alien puppet riding in the riding shotgun, you'll, you'll recognize him. So uh, remember, take if you like the show, remember to re- rate and review us and subscribe to No Password Required Podcast. Be sure to send your questions and comments to info at nopasswordpodcast.com. As always, I'm Ernie Ferrarusso. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk again soon. Thank you for listening to the No Password Required podcast. The show is produced by Cyber Florida. A special thanks goes out to our friends at Carlton Fields and Cognizant. 
If you'd like to learn more about the podcast, visit our website, cyberflorida.org slash pod. 